Let's just get right down to business. The Joe Roberts Show. This, this is The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. All right, welcome back, everybody. We've gone through the Ethereum merge this week successfully, and we also have Justin back again. We're going to discuss what's happening with the merge, what the benefits are, and what we may see going forward. Justin, welcome back. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, pretty uneventful morning, which is you know what we all want. Uh, we wanted it to go smoothly, and, and sure enough, it did. Thanks to the unrelenting testnet that the developers have thrown together to make sure that everything was tested fully before it went through. I think that everyone is happy with the outcome here and everything seems to be rolling smoothly. You know, I, I checked my ETH wallets this morning. Everything looks good. You know, no funds moving around. So that's always good. I think everyone has been really excited for this. And there's been a lot of buzz in the community for the last really like year or two about the merge and about going to proof of stake. And it's finally here. So that's great. And now we got to ask, what's next? <laughs> <laughs> and kind of uneventful, right? I mean, price really didn't do anything. I mean, nothing kind of happened, right? I mean, I was sleeping, so I just woke up and, you know, hey, price is down a little bit. But, you know, what does that maybe mean for ETH holders moving forward? And, you know, what's going to happen with the network? Yeah, so, I mean, ETH holders have to be looking towards what's next for the network and the community. You know, now that this catalyst is out of the way, what is going to actually bring economic value to the Ethereum chain? And I think the answer to that is more institutional adoption from people who were weary of Ethereum as a result of its proof-of-work energy usage. There's been a lot of flack towards Bitcoin for exactly this reason. And I think, especially on the left side of the political spectrum, you've had a lot of people and, and politicians railing against Bitcoin for its energy usage that seemingly is wasteful. Now, there's some debate on that, of course, but you can't really say that about Ethereum now that it's gone to proof-of-stake. And it also shows the resilience of the Ethereum community that it was able to make this big of a change to the network. I mean, this is huge. The fact that you've obsoleted all these miners around the world, right? All these GPUs that are not going to be hitting the market, much to the uh, chagrin of gamers. It really shows that the Ethereum community is able to adopt new technology and to advance the interest of the network through changes. It's bullish all around for the long-term fundamentals of ETH. But in the short to medium term, it doesn't seem like anyone really cares because if you look at the price, it didn't go anywhere, right? Like there was no dump, there was no pump. Maybe we'll see something in, in a little bit, but I think we're still kind of subject to the whims of the macroeconomic environment here. And this is going to be more of a long-term trend to the price now that we actually are deflationary. The supply of Ether is now going down as a result of the merge, there's no more issuance to miners. And so from a fundamental perspective, it looks great. Ethereum looks like it's ready to handle the next generation of DeFi apps and the next level of institutional adoption, but it's going to take some time for that to kick in. Yeah, I agree. So what options these miners have? I mean, can they do Ethereum Classic or where will they go next or will they just dump them on the market? Ethereum Classic is probably the, the next logical step for these miners. It's going to be a dramatic reduction in their revenues just because Ethereum Classic is worth a lot less. There is also the ETH PAL fork that no one really seems to know what's going on with that. Is it going to be officially supported by exchanges or is the network just going to die in chaos? 
it still remains to be seen. I mean, I thought it would have been up and ready already by the time the merge went through, but the team that is running it, and I say team very loosely, seem to be a bunch of amateurs. You know, they don't really know what they're doing, and it's sort of uh, fly by the seat of their pants. And I don't think anyone really wants it. This is just sort of a money grab. You know, it's whoever wanted to fork this thing and and try to squeeze some money out of it. That's what's going on. And the chain itself is problematic because it's a fork of the state, right? So you now have an Ave on the ETH Pal chain and an Ave on the original chain and a MakerDAO on that chain and a MakerDAO on the original chain. And the ETH Pal chain is not going to be supported by any of these, these dApps. So those smart contracts are just going to kind of rot away. And there's going to be problems with hackers getting in there and causing havoc and no one's going to support anything over there. So it could just be chaos and nothing really gets done over there. So I'm sure that the miners are looking at that and thinking, hey, maybe we can just like farm and dump or mine and dump this real quick, but then we'll probably go to Ethereum Classic if we want to stay in the business. But that's only going to be the miners who have the absolute lowest cost of electricity just because of the fact that Ethereum Classic is just a much lower market cap coin and those rewards aren't worth near as much. So for all those ETH holders out there, and they're looking obviously maybe stake on the network and earn the yield, I mean, how do they participate and will those yields be going up now that we move to this proof of stake? It's not clear where the yields are going to go. That really depends on both the transaction fee revenue and how many people and how much Ether is going to be staked. Because of course, the more Ether that's staked, the less the yield is going to be effectively as that reward kind of gets spread out amongst more capital. But there are three main ways that an amateur can stake, which is you can use Lido. They have a liquid staked ETH token. Um, if you just go to the Lido DAO Twitter, they can link you to their website and, and you can get going there. There's also Rocket Pool, which is a decentralized staking pool. It works similar to Lido. You'll get their token RETH, which is a liquid staked Ether that is backed by all those Rocket Pool validators. And then the third one, which is a new one to the game, is Coinbase staking. And uh, this one, you know, if you have Ether on Coinbase, you can basically just click a button and start earning yield on your Ether. And I think this is probably going to be one of the most popular ways to do it because it's so easy. You know, you don't have to worry about your own custody solutions, whether there's a hardware wallet or whatever. Lots of people are already comfortable keeping their money in Coinbase and clicking a button to get an extra 6% annual yield. Hey, it seems like a no-brainer. So I think that's going to be one of the most popular ones for sure. But then if you want to get down and dirty with running your own node, you can, of course, do that. You can run an ETH2 validator and stake in multiples of 32 Ether. Um, You can also become a Rocket Pool validator if you want to stake half that amount and bring in the other half of the Ether from people who are just trying to have a liquid stake token. And you can get a little bit extra APY on your Ether on top of that. Like if if you had 32 ETH, you can run one validator solo, or you could run two validators on Rocket Pool and bring in other users' Ether in the mix there. So there's a couple of options if you want to run some nodes. But you know, a lot of people are saying, yeah, you run this on your laptop or whatever, which you can, but just remember, this has to be up all the time. You, know, you can never turn this computer off or you'll take penalties. So this is more of a, a server infrastructure thing if, if you're going to be doing that. So there's a couple of options to stake, and I think it's a great way for long-term holders of Ether to get a little bit of extra yield on their Ether. And I think this is also going to increase the attractiveness of Ether from institutional adoption. 
I mean, most of the people listening here probably don't know how to run a validator. And, you know, at a high level, what is the work that is involved so everyone has an idea of what that looks like? Yeah, so you're probably going to be standing up a Linux server. So you need to have some familiarity with running Linux, some basic familiarity with Linux command line. And uh, you're going to be installing the Ethereum validator software, which you can do it a couple different ways. Some people run it in like a Docker container, or some people will build from source. There's some really good guides that you can follow online if you go to the Ethereum to repos. There's a lot of good readmes in there to look look through. You can also download a Docker image that will do this. So if you're familiar with Docker, it's pretty easy to send this up. But yeah, you've got your Linux server, you've got the Ethereum 2 software running on that. And then once you've set that up in a secure way, now all you have to do is make sure that you maintain internet connectivity, the server stays online, and that you update the software every now and then. So there are going to be, of course, hard forks to Ethereum, and you have to make sure that you are updated in case that happens, otherwise you're gonna get kicked off the chain. So yeah, once, once you set it up, it's pretty easy to maintain. It's just that setup process can be a little bit cumbersome if you're not familiar with Linux or running a server. So now the merge is done, right? What can people expect from a transaction speed or cost or at least the next stages for the network? Yeah, so there's been a lot of uh, misinformation actually around the transaction fees. The merge does not actually reduce transaction fees. I mean, technically there's like a, 1% reduction or something tiny in the transaction fees. And it's just due to some technical difference in how the transactions are handled. But by and large, the gas fees are going to be the same as they were before. And you know, you're going to see spikes in the gas fees when something crazy on chain is going down or you know, the next bull market. What's really making the difference right now is the layer twos. So Arbitrum, Optimism, ZK Sync, these layer two networks that are finally starting to get some traction and offloading a lot of the load that would be going on the layer one are now on these layer twos. And that is going to obviously reduce the congestion for the layer one transactions. So that's really the scaling roadmap of Ethereum is offloading to these layer twos and making the layer one chain just more of kind of a hub between these layer twos. And so I would recommend that you go ahead and get onto the layer twos and play around with that because that's where you're going to be doing things at least during the next bull market. Why is it that layer twos can process faster and cheaper transactions than a layer one? Yeah, it, it gets quite technical, but it comes down to various ways of compressing the data and putting them onto the blockchain. So it, it doesn't quite work like compressing something in a zip file, but it's, it's similar in philosophy where you're taking a bunch of transactions, like in the case of an optimistic rollup, you're rolling up those transactions into a small chunk of data, and then you're just posting that to the layer one. And so you can do a lot more transactions at a high speed on the layer two. And then every once in a while, they post those transactions to the layer one to finalize them and give you the security of the layer one. And that's really the secret sauce to these rollups. And so in the case of optimistic rollups, there is this concept of a fraud proof, which is that if someone tries to post invalid transactions to the layer one, somebody can see that and they post a proof of fraud and then that's going to cause some sort of slashing event down the line. And then there's also zero knowledge rollups or ZK rollups. And in those cases, you actually generate a mathematical proof that everything was kosher on the layer two. And then you post that proof to the layer one. And in both cases, you're able to take a large amount of data and compress it down to a small chunk and then just post that little chunk to the layer one. 
And that is ultimately how Ethereum is scaling from a high transaction load down to something that fits on the more decentralized layer one chain. So you think with these layer twos and maybe eventually sharding on the roadmap that what the vision is for Ethereum ecosystem as a whole will be achieved over the next 10 years? Yeah, I think it'll happen sooner than 10 years. We're looking maybe more like three years for them to have the data sharding or dank sharding is another terminology you'll see. I think that there's been a lot of work behind the scenes that people haven't necessarily been paying attention to because we've been so focused on the merge. But that other technology is coming very quickly. And I think that uh, with definitely within three years, we should see that on Ethereum. And by then, of course, layer twos will be much more mature and we'll have a lot of layer twos to choose from on Ethereum. But this begs the question of the overall vision of Ethereum. Is this network of layer twos really the way that we should scale blockchains? Or is this more something like Cosmos and their IBC that is going to dominate? Or is this something more like a monolithic chain like Solana? There's a lot of different approaches right now to scalability. And I don't think anyone really knows the answer. So with these layer twos and sharding, right? How does this impact composability? And what's your thoughts there? Yeah, so if you're a dApp on one rollup and there's a dApp on another rollup, there's no composability there. Yeah, you can bridge tokens. You know, you can take tokens from one rollup and you can bridge it back to the layer one and then bridge it over to the other rollup. Or there are some ways to bridge directly between rollups, but that's just sending tokens. You know, if you want to if you want to have some high composability, like let's say a DeFi options protocol, right? That's going to rely on a bunch of different other protocols, DEXs, lending markets, things like that. You know, you you have to locate those smart contracts on the same chain as these other things that you depend on. So from a composability perspective, there is still this problem of a lot of things are still going to end up on the same chain and that chain is going to get really congested. And in order to solve that, you really just need to make that one chain really scalable. One of the cases for Solana is that it's really going for maximum composability and making the fastest chain that you can. Now, the downside of that is the validators are less decentralized because you need a beefy server to become a validator. You can't run that as a home user. And a lot of people are uncomfortable with that for their non-sovereign money because you can just imagine if there was some sort of government crackdown on nodes, it's a lot easier to go shut down nodes in a data center than it is nodes that are running in people's houses. So there's sort of a failover to home nodes capability of the Ethereum layer one that is sort of like the bottom layer of security, if you will, that really gives you a higher level of sovereignty. But on the other hand, you trade off scalability. I think this is just a trade-off space that's going to have to be explored. And probably there's different optimizations depending on the type of application. So the DeFi stuff that has to have high composability, I think that's going to find itself in these highly scalable, composable chains. But then we're going to see a long tail of other apps that don't need as much composability. And those are going to be spread around on different layer twos that are still offering really cheap fees to the users. How will the impact of these layer twos affect the price of the Ethereum token and the future cash flows? Yeah, the layer twos, of course, are making layer one transactions, and those have to pay fees in Ether. So that will drive cash flow to ETH validators by paying those fees and also to all Ethereum holders by burning Ether. The burn sort of acts like an indirect dividend to all Ethereum holders. And then the transaction fees, of course, goes directly to 
the validators. These layer twos, yeah, will drive economic value to the layer one. It'll create more demand for that. It will also create demand for layer one transactions from users having to bridge between layer twos and do things between layer twos. So it all points to more activity on the ETH layer one and, and the, the ETH layer one really becoming like a hub of all these other ecosystems. But there are some criticisms about layer twos using their own token for transaction fees when they could have used Ether. That does reduce the amount of fees that Ether would generate because if they had used Ether, right, that's just more demand for Ether. But, you know, everyone wants their own token, right? So <laughs> that's probably the way it's going to be. So really, Ethereum layer one is going to derive its transaction fees from aggregating this economic activity from the rollups. It's not necessarily everyone wants the token. Everyone wants the money from the token, right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, you've got all these VCs that fund these projects, right? You know, they need to get something out of it. This is not just, you know, for the benefit of the public, which I get that. And, and there's something to be said about the flexibility to have different economic models uh, for these rollups. Like, they do have to find a way to incentivize the rollup nodes, right? There are these nodes that are running that are taking your transactions and posting them to the layer one. And, uh, you know, these are pretty beefy servers. So you got to pay people to do that. And it makes sense to have a token that's designed to do that. But I think whether they have their own token or not, the eFlayer one still benefits just from aggregating all of that and, and serving as the bridge between all these ecosystems. So from here, where do you think ETH is going in regards to adoption, price? You know, are institutions going to now jump on this because of the cash flows starting today? Or what, you know, what's happening? That's been kind of the story going around. But you know, what do you forecast here? I think we will slowly see more institutions warming up to Ether as a mainstay in their crypto portfolios, especially as the next bull market becomes more clear in terms of... Uh, actually happening <laughs> because right now it still looks pretty grim in the macroeconomic environment. But as these things always go, there will be another bull market and people are going to try to prepare themselves for that and, and figure out you know where, where our flow is going to go. I think Ether is primed to be a top spot in institutional portfolios just because it's a safe bet. You can't go wrong buying Ether, right? It has such a large community behind it. It's battle tested. It's seen as credibly neutral you know there's no like insider dev team that's running the show it's got a very broad appeal globally and that puts it at the center of the crypto world and potentially it becomes a better money than bitcoin even just because of that broad appeal so i think that we're going to see a slow trickle of institutional money into ether in preparation for the next bull cycle and we'll probably see some statements made by these big banks. You know, we might see like a, a Wells Fargo executive come out and say, oh, yeah, you know, we're recommending Ether to our clients or something, something along those lines. I would not be surprised to see that. All right. Well, let's leave off on ETH for today. Anything else we want to close it out with? Yeah. I mean, just make sure that if you're going to do anything with this ETH pal chain, you are really careful. You should probably create a burner wallet and, <laughs> you know, not use the same wallet between chains. It's looking real sketchy. I would just advise caution with that. So maybe don't touch it, don't do anything with it at this time. Yeah, I have no plans to touch any of my forked coins that are ending up there. So I'm just going to wait and see what happens. Probably there's going to be nothing for you to do. It's going to be, you know, picking up pennies in front of a steamroller 
the only people that are going to get any money out of this are like the, the, the MEV people, you know, that are like front running trades and things like that. There's a lot of that type of shit going on for the average person. There's really nothing to do in my opinion. All right. Where should people catch you on Twitter? Catch me on Twitter at jgrizzled1. I post some hot takes. The Joe Roberts Show.